Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Hosea. We'll be looking at Hosea chapter 14. And yes, I preached Hosea chapter 14 back in, I think it was maybe September of 2020. But this will not be the same sermon. I'm not just skating and reheating old sermons here. Going back and looking at certain texts from some of the minor prophets and endeavoring to preach Christ and to preach the gospel from, from various of them. Frankly, I was actually surprised. I didn't look at my old sermon. I came up with an outline for this one and was surprised myself at how different it was. So, just in case you were wondering, not microwaving past sermons. I'm uh, preparing fresh ones for you. So our uh, our text will be Hosea chapter 14. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. And that's the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that in this Old Testament passage of prophecy, that we would see Jesus we would hear his voice, and that you'll bless this word to us now in his name. Amen. I was thinking about hymn number 420. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a communion hymn. At the Lamb's high feast we sing, usually sung to the same tune as uh, Come Ye Thankful People, Come. It's a triumphant communion hymn, and the last verse has this line that says, Israel's hosts triumphant go through the wave that drowns the foe. And I thought of that verse um, as it reflected on the final verse of this text. It speaks of the ways of the Lord. They're right, 
and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. It was like the Red Sea. God opened up the Red Sea. He parted the waters, and his people walked through as though it were on a highway. They walked through on dry ground, the Scripture says. But when the Egyptians attempted to take that way, God brought the waters back on them, and they drowned. The reason I was thinking about that is because Hosea 14 begins and ends with observations about stumbling. Did you notice that? Verse 1 rebukes Israel and says, You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Sin causes us to stumble. And then verse 9 is a call to wisdom, and in it we're told that God's ways are right, and for the upright, for the upright, God's ways are a path that is level, it's firm, and safe. But transgressors find God's ways to be otherwise, and they therefore stumble in them. It's somewhat like what Proverbs 13, 19 says, to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. God calls them to a good way, but they can't stand it. It's repulsive to them. Just as Christ is the fragrance of life unto life for some, and he's the fragrance of death unto death to others. But the the beauty of this passage from Hosea is that it teaches us about God and his grace, his mercy towards sinners who repent. God is ready to bestow abundant blessings upon sinners who repent and trust in him. He's ready to do it. You see this eagerness of God to reach out with his love and with forgiveness and grace and mercy. He's ready to bestow abundant blessings, not just meager ones, abundant blessings on sinners who repent and trust in him. So I want us to see tonight God's gracious call to repentance and what this text says, secondly, about God's tender mercies. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up by considering one way that has two outcomes. So first of all, this gracious call to repentance. <clears throat> I trust uh, you, the, uh, the Sunday evening crowd, r- read your Bibles. Most of you, maybe all of you, have, have read the Scriptures in their entirety. Maybe you have a practice. I hope you do have a practice of reading systematically through the Bible on a regular basis. And if you've read the Bible, you know that it's full of warnings from God. They're everywhere, in both the Old Testament and the New And sometimes those warnings that we read come across sounding to our ears as a little bit harsh, if we're honest about it. Sometimes you read a warning in Scripture and it makes you cringe a little bit. And if if the eyes of our faith aren't calibrated properly, we can read the warnings of Scripture and they can come across even as unloving. And certainly an unbeliever Uh, who's reading the scriptures and reads these warnings, could take offense at them, that they're harsh or that they seem unloving. But we must not interpret God's warnings that way. Think about this. When the Lord God warns sinners against their sin and warns them of coming judgment, consider, first of all, the parties involved in this warning. We're talking about the creator of the universe, the eternal God who existed from eternity, 
who is Lord of all, who made us. And he's issuing a warning to whom? Creatures. Creatures that are like a mist that is there today and, and then goes away. The creator warning a creature. So consider the parties involved. Consider also the astounding patience of God. That's another thing you, you can't miss, really, if, you, if you've read the scriptures. How patient was God with the people of Israel as they went through the wilderness? It's within days of his deliverance of Israel, bringing them safely through the Red Sea. What were they doing? They were grumbling, complaining, questioning God's love for them, questioning his mercy. And yet God patiently bore with them. He patiently bore with them after they had come into the land and they turned to idols. And the book of Hosea has been described by some commentators, by some authors, as as sort of a pageant, as in like a Christmas pageant, you know, where, where kids put on a play to depict the nativity story or something like that. Hosea's life, in a certain sense, his ministry, his prophetic ministry was sort of a pageant because God called Hosea to marry a woman who was going to be unfaithful to him. And that seems very harsh, doesn't it? Seems like a very bitter pill to cause his prophet to have to swallow. But the reason he did it is that in Hosea's life, in the experience that the prophet had, there was this illustration of God's experience with his own people. His people, who he spoke of as his bride, and to whom he said he would be a husband. And his people then were unfaithful to him. They worshipped idols. And he continually describes in his word idolatry as being this sort of spiritual adultery. And the book of Hosea has the prophet whose wife was unfaithful to him, and he goes back and woos her to return. He forgives her. He brings her back into his home. And that's what God does. It's an illustration of God's patience. It's an illustration of his forgiveness. So think about those things when you read or hear warnings in Scripture And when you view them in that light, you'll see that God's warnings are always gracious. I've said that many times, and I I think it bears repeating. God's warnings are always gracious. If for no other reason than that the moment we sin against God at any time, he would be fully within his rights, he would be fully and perfectly just simply to strike us down right then and there. So the fact that we have an opportunity even to hear a warning means that God has been patient. He's held back his wrath. And God's warnings always lead us to repentance. And just like God's warnings, God's call to repentance is gracious. Look at verse 1 of our text again. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. They had stumbled, they had fallen, and it was because of their own sin. And in Hosea's prophecy, 
when God, through his prophet, calls the people to repent, what were the things of which God was calling them to repent? What were the things he was calling them to turn from? Well, we've got a couple enumerated for us in the text. One was the fact that they had been putting their trust in man, and they confess it in verse 3 when they say, Assyria shall not save us. The Israelites had not put their trust in God. They had put their trust in other nations. And so when their enemies were coming against them, rather than crying out to the Lord, they would hire Egypt or they would hire Assyria. When a threat was looming and God was calling them to repent of putting their trust in man, putting their trust in horses, mentions horses, we shall not ride on horses. They'd put their trust in machines of war. I want God to protect our nation, but I don't put my trust ultimately in the F-35 or the M1A1 Abrams tank or the Pershing II missile. Those things can't save us. But that's essentially what was happening in, in ancient times when people were putting their trust in horses putting their trust in foreign armies to come and augment their defense forces. So they were to repent of putting their trust in man. Secondly, they were to repent of worshiping false gods. In the second half of verse 3, it says, we will no more say our God, they won't any longer cry out, in other words, in prayer or in faith, to the work of their own hands. In other words, they had fashioned idols, and they trusted in these false gods that were of their own making. So that's what the people in Hosea's day were to repent of. Uh, What about in our day? What are we to repent of? Pretty much the same thing. Just wearing different clothes, maybe, but it's all the same stuff. There really isn't anything new under the sun, is there? The Israelites of old were putting their trust in man, they were putting their trust in horses, We need to be repenting of putting our trust in things other than God. You can fill in the blank with whatever it is you may trust in at any given time. X, Y, Z, whatever it is, we all need to repent of putting our trust in something other than God. We need to repent of setting our hopes on something other than the Lord Jesus. And then, just like the people of ancient Israel, we need to repent of worshiping false gods. In other words, whatever it is you're trusting in. Are you trusting in some political agenda to make life better? Are you trusting in some public policy, which if implemented would, make, would take away inflation and, and bring down gas prices and, and make life easier for us? So, your gods, or whatever you're trusting in other than the living and true God, or that thing that you must have. You can think of idols, you can think of false gods in modern times, in, in 2023, as uh, in terms of two words, trust and must. What am I trusting in? What am I relying upon? What do I think will really fix things and make my life better? Or must. 
I have to have this. It's the thing that you add to Philippians 1.21. Because in Philippians 1.21, Paul said, To me, to live is Christ. And we say, to me, to live is Christ, plus that house I've got to have. For me, to live is Christ, plus that job I want so badly. Those are our gods. When we say, I need this, it's a pretty good indication that, uh, that that's an idol for us. Because <clears throat> we're very critical of ancient peoples, right? You know, archaeologists can excavate little statues that apparently people in ancient times would worship. And we think, oh, well, you know, they were so benighted by their ignorance and their unscientific view of the world. And, and of course, they were superstitious and they were idol worshipers. But I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm living in modern times. Well, you have your idols too. You do. We all do. Your idols aren't statuettes or little figurines made out of wood or precious metals, probably. You know, 21st century idols <clears throat> are, uh, they, they have account numbers. 21st century idols wear jerseys and play in stadiums. Those are our idols today. And I think it's very helpful whenever I come across uh, an explanation that a, that a minister or a theologian or a commentator will, will use to, to help as a litmus test to see if something is an idol for us. There are lots of them. I guess they, they probably fall into a few basic categories, but it's helpful to be able to say, you know, if x or y then this is probably an idol of mine <clears throat> and i just want to share a couple the well, actually i've already shared the first one what do you add to philippians 121 <clears throat> to me to live is christ plus what what are you filling in that blank with whatever it is it's an idol or here's another one that i came across in the devotional book i've been reading Very insightful, very helpful explanation here. Listen, this is your idols. These are your idols. Anything that is functionally more important to you than God is an idol. Anything you love more than God, even a good thing like a spouse or child or social cause, is a false god. It's pretty simple. Anything that is functionally more important to you than God is an idol. Functionally, in the sense that, what that means is, every Christian will say, there's nothing more important to me than God. He's the most important thing in my life. But where the rubber meets the road in your daily life, what's really most important? Whatever it is, if it's not God, it's an idol. So there are a couple of idol detectors for you. Idols, <clears throat> you know, idols are like, when I go, we have a gravel driveway, and weeds grow in it. And I'll go out and I'll pull all the weeds out of the driveway. And then a few days or a week later, guess what? There are more weeds. And our hearts 
are like that with idols. We can pluck up the idols, we can throw them into the fire, and then more idols spring up. So this process of destroying the idols of our hearts is an ongoing one, and and I don't mean to discourage you, but you're going to have to be at it all your life. But you've got the Holy Spirit to help. That should encourage you. Idols grow like weeds in our hearts, and we have to destroy them continuously. So God gives gracious calls to repentance, and he is calling you to repent today. You may already be a believer. Most of you are. But we need to live lives of repentance. Repentance is, a one time, is not a one-time, one-and-done thing. We need to daily repent And when God calls us to repent, it's not merely an invitation. It's certainly not just wise counsel that he's offering. And yes, of course, we do correctly speak of the the free offer of the gospel. But Christ, because Christ is offered freely, but the call to repentance is more than just an offer. The call to repentance is a command. And I declare that to you tonight. Acts 17.30 says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. There are no exemptions. That command goes out to every creature, every man, woman, child on earth. Repent. It's a gracious offer, but it's also a command of God. It's gracious because it's for our eternal good. It's gracious because it's undeserved and because it's merciful, but it comes from the King of kings who will have your allegiance. That's gracious, God's gracious call to repentance. <clears throat> but this passage contains wonderful words about God's tender mercies. This is why in our Christian circles, including in this church, we speak and we sing of amazing grace. Because it really is amazing. And as we reflect on it, it should bring to our minds and to our hearts afresh each time just how amazing God's grace is. Remember, Hosea was preaching to a nation that had been in Continuous rebellion against Almighty God for two centuries. And he was still offering them grace if they'd repent and turn to him. And how does God say he'll respond to their repentance? If I were God, it would be, all right, well, it's about time you straightened up your act. I'm going to give you a period of probation. We'll see if you're really sincere about all this. I'll be a little bit cautious with you because you've been rebelling against me for so long. So that would be, if, if Steve Walton were God, it would be, it'd be an ugly scene. But how does God respond or say he will respond to their repentance? He says he'll heal. I will heal their apostasy. God has the power to heal your bodies, but he's also got the power to do something no physician can do and that your body can't do for itself. He has the power to heal apostasy. He can heal souls. He can heal hearts in in the sense of the inner man. No physician can do that. But God says he'll respond to the repentance with healing. 
He says he'll respond to their repentance with love. He says, I will love them freely, not cautiously, not reservedly. I will love them freely. And he says, I will turn from my anger. And he gives these word pictures in verses 4 through 7. Word pictures that describe refreshing. Word pictures that describe renewal. He says that he'll be like the dew to those who repent. And in the ancient Near East, in the modern Near East for that matter, especially the regions of it that are very arid, that dew that falls is precious. And God says, I'm going to be like that to those who repent. And he says then that they will be like a blooming flower. Throughout these verses, God speaks of future beauty. He uses images that describe strength. He talks of, the, of Lebanon. Uh, he certainly got in mind the, the, the famed cedars of Lebanon that were strong and had a wonderful fragrance. He speaks of abundance. That's all amazing that God would offer such a thing to people who had been resisting him and defying him for generations. Well, how is it? We ought to ask, how, how is it that God could offer such free and bountiful kindness to people who have so deeply rebelled against him? And the answer is, because his righteous anger against our sins was vented. It was poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God promised Eve that one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. That offspring was Christ. God promised Abraham that one of, someone, one of his offspring, his seed, would cause all the families of the earth to be blessed. That offspring, that seed was Christ. God promised the people Israel that he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses to whom they must listen, and he would lead them in the truth. That prophet was Christ. God promised David that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever and his kingdom would have no end. That son was Christ. So because the work of Christ was coming and it was sure, nothing could stop it. And he would accomplish it in its time. God could extend the grace of Christ to people even in Hosea's day. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one in the Old Testament or in the New. There's only one way to Christ. Now, we, we use that verse where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We usually use it and emphasize and focus in on the exclusive aspect of the statement as, so as to explain that you can't get to God, you can't get to the Father by means of any other world religion. There's no other philosophy or system of belief that will get you to God, only Christ. But we ought to also take note of the fact that that verse, in addition to to declaring that exclusivity, 
it also proclaims this glorious truth that there is access to the Father. There is a way, and it's Christ. And that brings us to our final point, which I said was one way, two outcomes. Look at the end of verse 9, the end of the chapter, the end of Hosea's prophecy. The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. You've heard that statement, I think, that observation that has been made about the heat of the sun and how it it has different um, effects on different substances, particularly that the same sun and the heat of that same sun can melt wax and it can harden clay. You've heard that, right? That's sort of what's been being said here. The ways of the Lord have similarly opposite effects on people. The ways of the Lord are right categorically and intrinsically. God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. His ways are true. They're right. And the upright walk in those ways. But transgressors stumble in them. The same exact ways. It reminds me of when I was in elementary school. I think I was probably first or second grade. And a friend invited me to his birthday party. He was having the birthday party at a roller skating rink. Well, I'd never been roller skating before. So I got my roller skates on. And all these other kids apparently were pretty experienced roller skaters. And at one point, they got us all out on the floor of the, of the skating rink, and we were going to have a race. So we lined up, and then they said, go. And everybody took off except for me. And I, I was there at the starting line, stumbling and falling down and trying to get back up and trying to run in these skates, and I couldn't figure out how to get moving. Same skates, same roller rink, but they were skating and I was stumbling. It's like the ways of the Lord. The upright walk in them, transgressors stumble in them. And he has this message, God does here at the end of this chapter, a message for the wise and discerning. And he says to them, understand and know. God is our protector. God is our provider. And the one who protects and provides has authority to command. In other words, God has every right to tell us how to live. And he does tell us how to live. In our flesh, we don't like to be told what to do, do we? But the thing about God's ways is that his ways are for our good. His ways, his ways lead to life. So what makes the difference between a person who stumbles in God's ways and someone who walks in his ways? What makes the difference is God's grace. If someone had taught me how to roller skate and taught me to to get up on my toes and use the little rubber stopper on the end of the thing so I could get off to a start and then start skating, I might have been more successful at roller skating that day. God's grace in Jesus Christ teaches us to love his ways, teaches us to walk in them. We're back to the wax and clay analogy. Our hearts are naturally hard, aren't they? In our sins and trespasses, We have hearts that are like stone. 
like clay in the sun. But God does heart surgery. He does heart transplants. He takes away hearts of stone. He gives hearts of flesh. How do you get access to that grace? Jesus said, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Turn to Jesus. Jesus himself said, to the one who comes to me, I will never cast him out. If you come to the Lord Jesus seeking his grace, he's not going to cast you away. He's not going to turn you away from him. It's time to stop putting your confidence in other things. It's time to lean on Christ alone. And God is ready to bestow abundant blessings upon sinners who repent and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, you are amazingly patient with sinners. You are amazingly gracious to them. And we pray that you'd multiply your grace to us. And we pray that today uh, you'll be adding to your church. We pray that you'd enable us, Lord, to walk in your ways. We thank you for revealing them to us. We pray all this with our thanks in Jesus' name.